0: Habakkuk chapter 2, Habakkuk chapter 2. Last time we looked at a foundational truth for the Christian life. The just shall live by faith. And we looked at three New Testament passages that quoted this Old Testament Habakkuk passage. That was a very captivating truth. It's a big deal. It's a high point. It's also a foundational point of the Christian life. But there is more in this passage. There's more to God's answer. And this reminded me of something. One of my struggles when I'm listening to somebody is they say something And then it grabs my mind and then I'm off in a different world thinking about it, but they've moved on talking to me about something else. About 10 years ago, my wife became a little frustrated with me on this matter. And so I began to work on something to where I could hold on to what she said for 30 seconds to even 60 seconds later and then I would respond that much later to what she had said all that time before. Still wasn't great, but it was was a little better. It was a little improvement. Last week, we covered something that was so important that I don't want us to just lose focus and be off in that world. I want to make sure that we're totally locked on to what God moves on. He moves on to something else very much related in his answer to Habakkuk. So God's answer is not done yet. And let's review the format of Habakkuk. I mentioned this in the first uh, sermon in the series. God or Habakkuk complains twice to God. God answers twice and then Habakkuk prays once. So Habakkuk chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 was Habakkuk's first complaint to God. Habakkuk chapter 1 verses 5 through 11 was God's first answer to Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1 verses 12 through chapter 2 verse 1 was Habakkuk's second complaint to God. And then where we are now is God's second answer back to Habakkuk and that's chapter 2 verses 2 twenty. So again, we're in the middle of God's answer here. Yes, the just will live by faith, but what else? I've titled this message, Totally Taunting. Playing off the fact that in verse 6, the nations take up a taunt against Babylon. And so... What seems to Habakkuk at the time of his writing, as well as to us today, is that nations, evil nations, evil people, evil forces can spin out of control. But here we can see that they are a nation that is actually mocked. Evil is actually mocked. So let's pray and then we'll dig in. God, this morning and pray that you would help us to not miss out on what's next and that we would have our attention locked on and that it would strengthen us and give us confidence in how you do things. In Jesus' name, amen. So number one this morning, God disdainfully diagnoses evil. I'm going to read the verses we looked at last week. So we can get the beginning of God's answer. And then we're going to move in to the rest of his answer this week. (coughs) So Habakkuk chapter two, verse two. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tables, or excuse me, tablets. So he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright in him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, Wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest, his greed is as wide as sheol. Like death, he never he has never enough. He gathers for himself all the nations and collects as his own all peoples. So verse 5 is new this week. And I was just curious, as I was studying this week, how many people here have heard someone use the word moreover recently in their conversation? Big Al has. Anybody else? It's not a word that we use very often. And does anybody know what moreover means besides Al, since he's heard it recently? I, that's kind of what I thought. I think this is a, a situation where some of the translations fail us, at least our modern ones, uh, because the effort of a modern translation is to be as clear as possible, yet as accurate as possible in conveying meaning. And so I just wanted to look at the other translations. The uh, King James actually has a pretty helpful translation. It says, Yea, also. The NIV says, Indeed. The New American Standard says, furthermore. The NLT, New Living Translation, in this case, doesn't translate this at all, leaves it unsaid. And the Christian Standard Bible also uses the word, moreover. I think actually the King James and then the New American Standard are the most helpful translations here. The idea is, furthermore, there's more to be said here. So it's it's kind of like a conjunction but a little more descriptive disjunction. And I also have more to say is what is going on here. So he says, moreover, wine is a traitor. And he goes on and he enumerates several other vices of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. I've been using Chaldeans and Babylonians interchangeably. If you were with us this spring when we were doing the Daniel Bible study, at least we got started on it. Uh, we talked about this a little bit. My understanding with the Chaldeans, uh, that the Chaldeans were a subset of the Babylonians. And I'm just spending time on this because I don't want you to be lost in something that's unfamiliar to you. Most people have heard of the Babylonians. They're very notorious. But Chaldeans is a subset of the Babylonians. Here in America, we have other words for Americans besides Americans and And sometimes it identifies more with a certain period of our history or um, a certain region of our country. And that's the way Chaldeans were for the Babylonians. During the time of Habakkuk, the Chaldeans um, were a, a people group within Babylonia that became synonymous with the label Babylonians. So that was a quick aside back to Habakkuk. God is enumerating the vices, the sins of the Babylonians. And these sins, as God mentioned them, mentions them, they speak for themselves. Who would want these things to be said about them? With, when somebody or a group of people is like this, it's quite obvious that it's a self-destructive behavior. It's in contrast to what God had just said about the just. The just have life and they live by faith. Whereas here, the Babylonians, they are living a path towards death. And yes, for now, at least for Habakkuk, it seemed like they were getting away with it and God was winking at it. There's another housekeeping matter I wanted to do with Verse five, and when these things come up, I think it's important to bring them up so you can have a strong faith in how God has preserved the scriptures. Most translations say that wine is a traitor. Now, a couple translations are going to say and use the word wealth is a traitor or some form of that. And here we have what's called a textual variant, a different Hebrew manuscripts, Uh, Most of them are are going to use the word wine, but occasional texts use the word wealth. And God, in his wisdom, as he preserved the scriptures, he has allowed minor differences among the texts. And there is a very helpful form called, a study called textual criticism that is able to study the original manuscripts and see where there was a scribal embellishment or a scribal error. We may be without power. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because the scriptures promise us that God's word is preserved. And if God has allowed a minor difference for whatever reason, it doesn't affect any portion of scripture. And usually through the study and the science of textual criticism, we are able to see what likely happened which is why the majority of our translations use the word wine here, because that is the likely word that was intended in the original manuscripts. Some people want to seize onto things like this, and they want to discredit our faith in God's word. And there's a lot larger conversation here, but I bring it up because I want you to know there's no reason to doubt God's word. There's a a huge amount of material that I would just bore you to tears with here this morning if I were to go over. But we have confidence in God's word and God's word is faithful. And it is preserved. <clears throat> so back to this matter of wine. God is uh, bringing up the fact that in, everybody during the time of the Chaldeans and during Habakkuk's time would be aware that the military forces... These folks were legendary for their drunkenness. And God brings this up in his answer to Habakkuk as an indication of their destruction. Drunkenness is not a positive thing to describe about anybody. And it doesn't have constructive effects with that person's life or the people around them. And so God is bringing up a very notorious thing about the Chaldeans. He brings up other things as well. And it seems to me, as God brings these up, He's very obviously saying, self-evidently, they're going to be destroyed. They're going to destroy themselves. These evil people who seem very powerful and unstoppable are on a self-destructive path of death. Seems to me almost as if God is sharing disdain and contempt for the Chaldeans. So number one, God disdainfully... Diagnoses evil. But it is more than that. God speaks. It's more than that God speaks against their evil. The nations do as well. Number two. The nations give evil in early funeral. Let's look at Habakkuk. Chapter two, verse six. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him. Who is scoffing. And riddles for him. And we're going to stop there for now. So it says, Take up their taunt. Who's taunting here? Well, my point already gives it away. The nations are giving a taunt. And how do we know that? Because in verse 5, it talks about He gathers for Himself all the nations. So the pronoun in verse 6 is referring back to the nations and the nations are taunting Babylon. Very interesting picture here. Uh, God is personifying the nations and saying they're, they're scoffing at Babylon, whether they're doing this ahead of time or whether at some point in the future after Babylon falls, the nations will scoff at Babylon. What is clear is that the whole world is going to, see Babylon's fall, the whole world is going to be able to condemn Babylon for their sin. And they do that in five woes. This is a structured poetic section of Habakkuk. And I know perhaps you don't care about that. But the essence of what is going on here is that not only does God look down on evil and Condemn it and diagnose it for what it is. But the whole world can see evil for what it is. Even the unbelieving world. And this is important because right now, to Habakkuk, that nation seemed unstoppable. So there are points in our lives when something evil seems unstoppable. But God is making the point that the whole world will be able to turn on that evil force at some point and condemn it and see it for what it is. Seems like Babylon's on the top of their game right now. There may be an evil force in our life today that seems like it's on the top of this game and nobody's going to stop it. But there's going to come a point where it goes down the path of death and it is no more. And the whole world can see it for what it is. The Believer's Bible Commentary summarizes these five woes. Um, in a helpful way. But before that, I want to read them to you. So let's look again at verse six. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing riddles for him and say, and here's the first woe. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him! Who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm? You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone. Arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. We'll stop there. Verse 20 is a part of the fifth woe, but it functions almost like a capstone, so we're going to look at that a little bit later. So here, the Believer's Bible Commentary gives us a summary of each of these woes. I know it's in highly poetic language, in ways that may not always relate to us, at least we don't feel so, but perhaps this summary will help. Number one, the first woe is against lust for empire or aggression. Number two, a second woe is pronounced on Nebuchadnezzar for his covetousness and pride. Number three, the third woe against the king was for his lust for magnificence and his blood-shedding tactics. The fourth woe is against Nebuchadnezzar for taking a savage delight in corrupting other nations, for shamelessness, and for his destruction of Jerusalem and Judah. The fifth and final woe condemns the king for the idolatry of Babylon in vividly sarcastic lines. What good is a gold or silver-plated idol when there is no breath in it at all? So five woes against Babylon. Yes, these things about Babylon don't mean much to us today, but there is a principle for us. It is this. Consistently in the Old Testament, God gave words to the prophets to preach. About the sins of Israel itself, as well as the sins of the nations surrounding Israel. So in today's terms, God is able to see evil, to diagnose it, as well as everybody around can see evil for what it is. God can see America's sins. God can see the sins of all the nations of this world. I'm not going to venture to say who the Babylon of today is. That really isn't the point. America is not a type of Babylon. America is not a type of Israel. America is one of the nations that the Bible speaks about. God does deal with nations. God will deal with America. God will deal with the nations of this world. God dealt with Israel for their sin. It's interesting, the beginning portion of the book of Isaiah, some of the harder portions of our Old Testament books are like what we just read. Because we read that, and it doesn't quite click for us. Because it's not speaking about current issues and current nations. But if I were to put America's name in there, or if I were to put... Russia's name in there if I were to put Great Britain's name in there and then start to use some of the clear and obvious sins of these nations then you'd be like woo boy he's stepping on toes he's getting awful specific and that's exactly what is happening here God can specifically deal with sin and confront it as well as just the world at large can see sin and evil for what it is and as it goes down the path of death. So as we consider the message of Habakkuk, as we see prevailing evil in this world, we can have confidence that it will fall. I'm not saying that we should take an outright taunt against the evil of this world. But as we look at these taunts, In this passage, they can be a reminder to us that it's very evident that evil will fall. What seems unstoppable now is, in fact, have almost like a funeral eulogy. This is kind of how I look at this taunt. The nations of this world are instead of a, you know, usually a eulogy at a funeral is a positive enumeration of someone's life. Well, here, this is a negative enumeration of the life of Babylon. And here, here's the funeral, they're dead, and you. this is what you did, you loser. That's what, that's what they're doing at a funeral, basically. And so as we look at this, and there is almost like a funeral dirge here enumerating all the awful things about Babylon so we can have confidence that all the awful things of evil will one day be put in the grave for eternal death. Number one, God disdainfully diagnoses evil. Number two, the nations give evil an early funeral. Evil is connected to false gods, always will be. When we look at false gods, it leads us to thoughts of the true God, so number three, the true God is in his temple. Technically, again, this we're looking at the last part of the fifth woe. But this is like a capstone for God's answer to Habakkuk. It's a capstone to the answer, the issue of evil. It's an ultimate, all-consuming answer. Let's look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 19. Woe to him. Who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, God is on his throne in contrast to the dead idols, the dead gods, the false gods of evil. Whatever these false gods may be, we're less so to have experienced nations today that are uh, caught up in literal idolatry Yet, whatever it is, whether it's a personality, whether it's a godless idea, whatever it is that energizes them, we know behind it is the devil and his demons themselves. And yet, they are completely impotent. They may be overlaid with gold and silver and look beautiful and ornate may be very fancy, the great ideas of this world can be very fancy, very glorious, very popular with the tones of idolatry surrounding it. But in contrast to God, they are dead. And the living God sits on his throne, very much alive, And it says that all the nations, let all the nations, all the earth keep silence before him. The earth is subject to him. The earth of all time is subject to God. And this is demonstrated through the fact that they are to keep silence before him. A reverence because he is king and you respect him as king. In contrast to the clamor of chaos. Which brings up the thought, well, that's not what's happening right now. There is the clamor of chaos, and evil is putting it forth. Well, my friends, that is the Christian life, the tension of the already not yet. Here, God's answer in his final words is the capstone of his answer, and really the, the capstone of the book for God's answer to Habakkuk, Is the fact that God looks at this in total, absolute terms. He is on His throne. The earth will be silent before Him. He is in control. And so the already not yet tension is that we have aspects of our victory in Christ now, already. But we have not seen all of that victory yet. But it is coming. But in God's perspective, there is no tension. That victory is here, it is done. God rules. And the gods of this earth are no gods at all. They are like dumb idols that the world tries to pump breath into. And they are foolish for doing it. and to consider the clamor of evil and all of its complexity, all of its vigor, earthly vigor, yes, but vigor, all of its earthly glory and to us is overwhelming, but to God, it's nothing. And God, as he sits on his throne, is able to oversee what is to us an overwhelming complexity, overwhelming power to us, but to him, let them keep silent in his presence because they are nothing <clears throat> so the only way for us to handle these awful realities of evil is to see God on his throne in his temple so yes go to god with your struggle is the what you see of evil overwhelming you and it's too much for you to handle, hard for you to cope with, and you're struggling with God's character and who He is and how He's working all this out. Go to God with that. But the ultimate answer is God is on His throne. He is in charge. Let all the earth be silent. That is the capstone. That is the answer. Number one, God disdainfully diagnoses evil. But it's more than that just God speaks against evil. Number two, the nations speak against evil. And they give it an early funeral. And then evil is connected to false gods. And when we look at false gods, it leads us to the true God. And number three, the true God in his temple. I brought up Psalm 73 several times because it's a beautiful parallel of what's happening in Habakkuk. And so I, I have uh, condensed it down a little bit, and I'm going to read a portion of it to you because it's a great way of just wrapping together what Habakkuk has just experienced. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel. Asaph is saying, yes, this is true. God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, Asaph, my feet had almost stumbled. I'd almost stumbled in my Christian life. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Because I was envious of the arrogant. And I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The wicked have no pangs until death. They live, they live an easy life. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That means they're prosperous. Evil people are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, they're proud. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They're violent. They don't care. They get away with it. Their eyes swell out through fatness. They're prosperous. Their hearts overflow with follies. Skipping down to verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens. Skipping down to verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Verse 16. But when I thought to know how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until. Here's the hinge point of the psalm. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Notice the comparison there with Habakkuk. God's answer ends in God's temple, the sanctuary, with God on his throne. And Asaph says, well, when I saw God on his throne, then I discerned the end of evil people. Then I saw what was going to happen to them. Verse 18, truly you, God, set evil people in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment. God swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So when we wake up, we've had a dream. The dream is usually gone in a matter of seconds, maybe just in less than an hour. That's the way these evil people are. They're nothing, they're gone. In God's eyes, they are worthless, empty, and gone. The rest of Psalm 73 parallels Habakkuk chapter 3 in what it is doing. Asaph then worships the Lord. Habakkuk chapter 3, we end with Habakkuk worshiping the Lord. And we're going to see that next week. As we conclude this week, my friends. The answer, yes, you need to go to God and be real and honest with your complaint. Habakkuk was, and God made sure that Habakkuk recorded it so that all of Christendom could read it and be on the same page with their struggles on these things. Go to God with your struggles and your complaints and who God is and what he's allowing. But ultimately, as you go through this, you're going to see that God is on his throne. He is in charge. And that will lead you to worship. Take a few minutes and respond to the Lord.